Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Hitandra Patel, the author of the recently published book, Accountaneur. Hitandra's worked in outsourcing, IT, finance, and accounting. He's also had a career with leadership roles in India, Thailand, and the U.S. Hitandra, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said? Thank you uh, very much, Nicole, for having me on your podcast. It's a great pleasure and honor for me to be here. And thank you to each one of you in the audience for your time and interest in listening to this podcast. I believe that time is the most precious thing in human lives, and I will do my best to deliver value from your investment of time. My book, Accountaneur, The Entrepreneurial Accountant, is based on years of experience of working with accountants and how they positively impact the lives of people they serve. In particular, there is a powerful differentiator between accountants who think entrepreneurially and other accountants. Uh, For example, if I take an analogy, when babies are born, you might say so cute or she's so beautiful or he's so adorable and so on. You never say, hey, she's so entrepreneurial. So you learn entrepreneurship. You're not born with it. And I have shared several actionable insights from real life to help accountants think more entrepreneurial. And the insights in the book can pretty much be applied to many other professions and industries. So I believe the book would be of great help to people and especially accountants who want to grow their business. Thank you for that introduction. I agree that the book will be valuable to many entrepreneurs, many professionals. There were so many strong points about being and working on your business, not just in your business, accomplishing things versus getting things done. Helpful and valued read for those that do read it. Hitandra, one of the items in the book that I thought was very distinct was the fact that you talk about creating measurable value for clients. And as an accountant, as a trusted advisor, you have that opportunity to create measurable value. Can you relay a success story for our listeners where you've had the experience either yourself or through one of your team members of creating true value for your clients? Great question, Nicole. In the rigmarole of the daily grind, it's very easy to lose sight of the actual impact of your work. As Black & Decker CEO famously said, it is not the drill machine that the customers are buying. It is the hole in the wall. I always tell my team members to think about what happens after you deliver the work to the client. What do the clients do with it? Uh, What inference they derive from your work? What do they do with that insight? Can we do what the clients do from the insights they get from our work? So basically, it's the next step. What happens after you deliver your work? That's the impact. That's the hole in the wall, the proverbial hole in the wall. One of my clients is an experienced CPA from San Diego. He has been running a successful practice for about 15 years now. And his clientele is mostly businesses and high net worth individuals. During the tax season, he would hire temporary staff, provide computer, desk, internet, and training. And he himself would work for 14 to 16 hours a day, sometimes even more.
more, including weekends. And he would get frustrated with the burden of reviewing the work done by the temporary staff. He met me at one of the trade shows where we exhibited. And he was surprised that I could offer him high quality shared resource. He started working with us, uh, gone were the headaches of managing the overhead. And after the tax season, he analyzed his business. It was his most profitable year over the last five years period. And that's not all. What he said after letting me know about the profits was really more important. He said, Hitendra, you helped me get more profit and sleep. You do not know what it means to have those extra two hours of sleep during the grueling tax season. My brain is fresher. I can apply my mind more on tax insights rather than just pushing the data into the tax software. My advice to clients has been sharper. Now, here is uh, how it benefited my company. Now, this CPA shared this story with the audience in one of the sessions at the same trade show the next year. One leading publisher, which publishes a monthly magazine specific to the accounting profession was attending this session. He came looking for me and talked with me for some time. He then discussed over the phone a few times and he published a story about this experience of the CPA. I received several emails from CPAs who read that story. Some of them signed up and started working with my company. So it was not the work that we do, but it was the possible impact of the work on their lives that mattered to them. And it was all the more clearer because someone similar to them had experienced that impact. And again, it's uh, not just the customers that experience the impact. One of my larger clients uh, has grown his practice from seven employees to 40 employees and from half a million in annual revenue to nearly 4 million a year. And about 80% of their employees are what they call client service representatives or CS Now, before hiring the services of my company, these CSRs would be busy in producing the work. Now, each of their CSRs have become like mini CFOs to the clients they handle. Now, they are more focused on insights and business intelligence rather than input and output. So it has enhanced their own quality of life, job satisfaction, and the experience of an enhanced uh, self-work. Now, that is what I call impact, the experience of human beings. Whatever you deliver as work, there is a human being who receives it and then goes through an internal experience journey. Now, you want to provide that delightful experience to your client, not the businesses per se, but those human beings who interact with them, be it the owner of those businesses or be it the employees. If you're providing services to individuals, it is even more critically important factor for your success to watch that impact on others' lives. Correct me if this is not the case. Basically, taking off some of the tactical work, they're able to focus on more of a strategic conversation. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. Uh, one of the things definitely uh, in it is there has to be some tactical work that needs to be done. Now, how do you invest your time in tactical work versus the strategic work versus the communicating work? Tactical has to be done by somebody, but it's not necessarily that you do it or it can be done by technology. It can be done by somebody else. If it's repetitive, if it's data intensive, because what happens is you only have eight hours, 10 hours a day in your work. And how do you maximize is uh, the attention to the strategy from the customer's point of view. Now, that's very critical. So time becomes a, a commodity that's so precious. So you want to focus on certain things that you actually take information which is done properly and convert that information into an actionable intelligence. So you have to, got to apply your mind. And for that, you need time. So I'm saying that you invest your time in strategic uh, disclosures or strategic investment, what I call, into pre-creating that 
impact for your customers. So that's what I'm trying to say here. That's a great approach how to build a business versus the actual exercise of practicing your specialty and this particular focus area being an accountant and managing the numbers. In your book, you talk about the 1099 economy and this it definitely hit home for me. I spend half of my time working in interim executive placement, interim consulting. So I'm quite aware of the 1099 economy and the U economy and other options for working. You've shared some steps about how a contingent workforce can really help an employer from a flexibility perspective. And there are some things you can do to ensure quality as both the deliverer of these services as well as the person on the receiving end. Can you share some of those tips and and recommendations for our listeners so that they can do both, build confidence with their clients that this type of model will benefit the clients, but also give the business owners who are really working on a contingency basis some confidence that they're going to have a strong business model to support their business going forward? Definitely. This is really saying that is really shaping up very on a very large scale. Uh, you must have used an Uber driver. As long as you're the consumer of those services, you're not too worried about you know, what happens with it because you're the one who's experiencing it. But the moment you hire somebody, a 1099 worker or a contingent worker, produce some work for your clients, that's where it becomes a little complex. And depending upon which profession or industry you're in, your regulatory requirements could be different. For example, you might need to disclose your use of 1099 workers to your clients if such workers need to have access to client confidential data and information. In that case, you will be required to make sure your remote 1099 workers have adequate data security measures in place. In most professions, there will be a need for continuous access to such wider talent pool. Uh, It will not be a transactional arrangement done today, gone tomorrow. It will most likely be a relationship-based work assignment or assignments. Now, they will need to learn your processes and control requirements. But the advantage is that you won't have to train them on the basics. There has to be the trust to share the process knowledge and requirements. You would get into a written non-disclosure, non-compliance beat non-poaching agreement, especially in processes that disclose your client's identity or contact information to your 1099 service providers. It is always good to do a quick social media due diligence. Check their LinkedIn profiles, Facebook, Twitter, etc. If you like, ask for references from their existing clients. If the work demands that they come into your work location, you still follow the same processes that your employees are required to follow. Example, access cards, user logins, etc. Now, when you start working with any 1099 provider, it is advisable to review the work fully before you deliver it to your clients. In some professions, you might not be able to let 1099 providers to produce the end deliverables so they can deliver you only the intermediate product for you to polish and complete it. Now, your clients will get worried, some more intensely than others. But uh, the biggest truth is that your clients care about their work being done to the best possible quality levels 
they expect, not much about how it is produced. You want to tell your clients something like, hey, I'm utilizing other resources to help me focus on key important things that matter for your business and your life. I have done all my professional due diligence on the capabilities of these resources, but uh, rest assured, it is me who is going to make sure everything is done properly. I'm going to sign off on your work. I am, or my company is the only one who is responsible for your work. I or my company, 100% accountable to you. So basically, you take care of those concerns by stating up front that, look, I can get my work done or produced anyhow. But I'm the one who is going to be responsible for you because you're the one who are contracting me to do your work. Thank you for sharing the detail. Hopefully, as businesses of all sizes are getting more comfortable with this type of workforce, we're going to see this be how people are working in the future. I talked to so many employers, investors, and others. They want to hire the CFO that can help with acquisitions. And then they want to swap out that CFO and get a CFO that's more accomplished with taking a company public or basically look at a CEO who's a growth CEO. Even at the highest levels, there is more flexibility around what the quote unquote employee and leadership makeup looks like today. And Leftfoot is focused on client retention and business development in professional services. You talk in your book at length about four different kinds of buyers, the commodity buyer, the product buyer, the solution buyer, the consultancy buyer. Could you elaborate on the different buyers and why this would be important to define a buyer when one was going in to pitch a piece of business to secure a current client for the future? Why would it be important? to know what kind of buyer you're working with and and what would you do once you identify what kind of buyer? Again, it's a great question. And this is a topic that in my own keen interest uh, because it deals with uh, human behavior and how they think. And typically uh, when you go shopping, uh, we subconsciously look for value. Now, for example, when we pick up something we like, but the price is expensive, we are not really thinking of the price, but we are thinking at, at this price, this product is not of the best value. So we try to measure what we get out of it by paying that price. Even the so-called impulse purchases are not not really uh, on a sudden impulse. They reflect our deep desires to have the experiences that those products deliver. It is just that we did not plan to buy it on a particular day or time. But when it comes to long-term commitments, say buying a house, it is a different ballgame altogether. You would think very differently when making that purchase. So depending upon what you sell, you would want to attract some particular types of buyers. In my book, I mentioned about four types of buyers. The first one I said was the commodity buyer. The commodity buyers, their focus obviously is on the price. Your first reaction is that you do not want such clients, but there is a positive these commodity buyers bring in. They force you to look for efficiency and productivity gains through standardizations, integrations, automation, and technology. Essentially, they help you optimize your costs. So despite the price pressure, your profit margins become healthy if you can manage all the standardizations and producing more work in a given unit amount of time. Now, then we have the product buyers. Now, their focus is on purchasing a state-of-the-art product or service. Most importantly, they are motivated by a clearly defined need. They know what they want. You would do well if you 
you provide them a customized package that fits their need at reasonable rates, of course, rather than a rate chart or an offering per hour rate, etc. Without the precise estimates of how much time it will take to complete their work. If you leave something open-ended, they're not going to be really happy. Product buyers, as I said, they're motivated by a clearly defined need. So they need a clearly defined answer what they're going to get back. The next step or next type is the solution buyer. Their focus is on the seller's core competencies. They're motivated by a critical business issue or business issues such as the need to increase revenue and profitability. The big challenge is to make sure you're on top of the industry trends, the regulatory environment and how it all affects them and how to keep them informed. For example, in the accounting and tax profession, the clients who seek tax planning services are typical examples of the solution buyers. Most of such buyers are looking for future gains from what they want to do now. They're certainly not looking for an instant fix or just getting the tax return done. Now, these buyers are not transactional. They are those relationship-based customers. And then uh, there comes the consultancy buyer. Uh, Their focus is on seller's consulting and advisory experience and the seller's willingness to make long-term commitment to helping the buyer. They are motivated by strategic initiatives. They will engage you for frequent interactions for a longer time period, maybe for a project or maybe ongoing consulting. How do you decide which types of buyers you want to attract? Depending on your business type, your product or service, your stage in the life cycle of your business. First and foremost, you need to analyze your existing buyers. If you're frustrated with many of them, you might be wanting solution or consultancy buyers, but you might have those commodity or product buyers. Now, in this case, you should deeply analyze your marketing and sales messages that might have attracted your current buyers to you. For instance, if your sales message says our prices are 15% cheaper or we will match the price, you will possibly attract only commodity buyers. On the other hand, if you're frustrated that your clients are seeking free advice most of the time and take away your precious time, your clients clients are technically solution and consultancy buyers, but maybe your services are really transactional in nature. So you haven't really graduated yourself to into that advisory role. So if you look at your existing buyers, it can give you a lot of signals as to what you should do with your sales messages, your service mix or product mix, and uh, how do you want to analyze your future buyers based on what's your current experience. And one of the simplest things that I always tell my clients as well is watch your feelings. You know, in, if at work you're getting frustrated more often than not, then there is a definite uh, mismatch in what you're trying to sell and what your buyers are trying to buy. You know? Thank you. Very interesting. Especially that last point, it really dives into what, as a business developer, we can be doing preparing for different buyers and by asking questions that help us define what kind of buyer they are and then emphasizing one thing over another. To that last point, determining whether most of our potential clients should fit into one category and going after those clients specifically. Practice focus, which creates a relatively defined group of potential clients. I should be able to figure out a 
exactly what would resonate with those clients and go after them versus being open to all kinds of clients and then having to deal with possibly all four types of buyers. So basically I can gear into one area and really see what's of value to them and then create messaging, create solutions, create a strategy, a delivery model that works for that particular segment of clients. Is that an accurate restatement? Precisely, Nicole. You put it very well. It's not difficult to achieve this kind of uh, segmentation or focus of uh, you know what kind of buyers you want. It just feels overwhelming. That, oh, how do I know? But once you start doing it, you, you'll actually enjoy it. People apply more mind than what I expect when I tell them this. Great points. I want to continue by talking about both inbound and outbound marketing. I had the pleasure of interviewing Aaron Ross, who wrote the book Predictive Revenue, which emphasizes creating inbound interest, spending a good amount of effort to create an environment where people who are looking for your service will come to you. Of course, Aaron's worked in a lot of different industries. He's had spent some time in professional services. Often when I'm talking to professional services people, especially lawyers, which is a big part of our listeners, there's reluctance to spend the time creating inbound interest through outbound marketing. Can you talk a bit about your experience, what your recommendations are to others that are coming to you for advice on marketing and business development? And if you could also provide a success story of where you've had a program that created an environment that led to additional business. One of the greatest thing uh, technology and internet has done is that it has made information available to almost everyone at the same time. Not too many businesses today can leverage information gaps in the marketplace. The proverbially much maligned used car salesperson, for example, you know, they gained notoriety because buyers did not have the information the salesperson had. Now, today, car salespersons are almost like consultants and car buyers do their homework before they go to buy cars. Now, in traditional outbound marketing, the seller initiates contact with the potential buyers. Now, inbound marketing, it is the buyer who initiates the contact with the seller. Now, technology has definitely created an opportunity for inbound sales. That is, your prospects come into the door or email or call you up based on what information and sales messages you put out there. People find you from websites, online marketplaces, social media, and so on. In most cases, they are those perfectly qualified prospects, the fit between your services and their needs is already worked out. There are some really good technology platforms that can automate your inbound marketing and sales processes, for example, HubSpot, Infusionsoft, etc. Now, at the same time, telecalling, trade shows, connecting with possible prospects, say on LinkedIn, where you reach out to prospects that is outbound is uh, also a critical part of your marketing. Now, one big thing, technology has done though is that it allows you to qualify your prospects far more effectively than earlier years so that your outbound effort can be more productive now. One of my clients in New Jersey sends out postcards just before the tax season begins and his return on that investment is spectacular. Now, there are technologies like salesforce.com that help improve productivity of outbound efforts and the cloud technologies have made it possible to use such technologies 
use at far lesser cost. Now, depending again on what your business is, you would need both inbound and outbound. If your product or service has only a handful of decision factors for buyers, outbound can be very effective. But if your product or service life cycle is longer, more consultative, a hybrid of outbound and inbound also works very well. I publish a lot of articles and posts depending upon what the contemporary interest is, what are the trending topics in my uh, chosen profession. My recent clients have all come through reading those posts somewhere and they're connected with with me on LinkedIn, straight away jumping on to discussions like, okay, how do I use your service? Okay, so a lot of sales process steps are already taken care of because you already created that reputation. Now, that's the power of inbound. It takes time though uh, for someone to see you as an expert, but then it, it does away with a lot of costly sales steps in the sales cycle. So inbound is a great strategy, actually, you can use depending on you know, what life cycle of your business uh, stage you are in. Hybrid of outbound and inbound, that's going to work for almost any service-based business for now. I've been focused on the statistic. 60% of the sales process has been completed before an organization contacts the company they're interested in doing business with an organization finding our services. They're able to determine based on our online presence, the actual services that can be delivered. You can more quickly move to having either any contact be about specifics or be about a very targeted way to address a client need or a client expectations. It's changed not only the sales cycle, the point that there is contact, it's actually changed the stage we're entering at the point you're having that conversation, they've already done thorough research. They've likely looked at online references. In my opinion, it's changed the role of the professional business developer and the professional who's growing business. And the beauty of it is 60% of the sales process is already finished. And the cost of that 60% is now passed on to the client. Earlier, you would spend all of that money to complete that sales cycle, isn't it? Right. They're doing it on their own. They're the ones doing the research. They're the ones finding you. They're the ones looking for references is a great point. You talk about finding your wow, finding the thing that your organization does that is different or exceptional or will be recognized as superior versus others in the space. I always talk about that being you're giving a presentation and you see people light up or often you'll get someone say wow or aha, just really acknowledge something that's unique or special. Can you talk about how you find that? And then of course, how you make sure that the customers see that. And I would love to hear about anything around that, that you think has been innovative, something you've seen either a practice or a way to get clients to recognize a particular accounting firm's wow. Unless uh, you know what wow means to your customers, how can you possibly deliver it to them? So how do you find the wow? You know, you just need to ask your clients. Okay, that's the first step. We may think that we deliver to customers what they need, what they want, but it may not be what the customers are thinking. The key is having the conversation with customers, be it via customer forums or any other means, person to person. Find out what that wow means to the customers, be it always delivering on time, within budget, saving costs or anything else that the customers feel the value about. It builds trust when you consistently do things that you say you will do. Now, wow is almost always when the customer feels delightfully 
pleasant surprises that were beyond their expectations. It's a very interesting point in a lot of professions. It's common that the work will get completed, but the interpretation, the delivery, the communication around that work is likely where a difference can be made. For example, what you said about not only doing the accounting work, but giving the advice that they have to watch their cash. Taking that next step with our lawyer clients, one of the things we talk about is not responding with a legal response, responding with a business response. The client who is not a lawyer in a lot of cases on the other side isn't given that legal statute to interpret and they're given the legal recommendation as it relates to their business. And I hear you saying the same thing with that wow. Tendra, many of our listeners are starting their business development career. They're professionals, they've worked for firms, they're feeling confident that they can deliver professional services, whether that be, you know, as an accountant, as an actuary, as a lawyer, what advice would you give that professional? What advice would you give them on how to start that process? So when you're starting out, what you need is opportunity. What you feel is the greatest idea, the greatest product or the service, but it is the buyer who will pay for it. So the risk is always with the buyer. So hence building in the risk reversal into your offer is very important starting point. You know, if you look at many startups now, all the softwares and apps, they'll have those free trial periods. But that's what risk reversal is. You you don't really lose anything other than, you know, investing your time in seeing, oh, can this app or software make my life easier? Let me try this out. Now, if you're working for someone else and are into business development uh, job, it is important for you to identify the risk buyers take and discuss those with your company's decision makers or strategy makers. But as a human being, the skill that you need is the ability to connect with people on a human level. You need to be a keen student of human behavior all your life. If you're not already read uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, the psychology of persuasion is the perfect starting point. And again, the legendary Jay Abraham's materials, which he gives a ton of them out for free on his website, abraham.com, will be your lifelong university to learn about business development. A millennial, mobile, global, you name it, but all of it is based on eternal fundamental principles. The means might have changed, but the end remains the same. And it is about human experiences. Strive to deliver the human experience your customers desire, and you will be successful no matter whether you're starting today or whether you're already 10 years veteran into your business. Absolutely agree. It really is about that human to human interaction, that human to human response. Enlightening interview, Hitandra. Thank you. Any last points you'd like to make before we say goodbye? Love to respond to queries from the audience. Thanks again, Nicole. Uh, appreciate your time and efforts to create uh, real value for your audience. Thank you. Fantastic interview, Hitandra. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Oh,